Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. Now that the New York State Senate has, for the first time ever, rejected a governor's choice for chief judge, Governor Kathy Hochul will have to choose a new nominee. The issue is still simmering as the Democrat and lawmakers engage in their biggest task of the year, agreeing on a $227 billion state budget. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports. Ever since the Senate Judiciary Committee rejected Governor Hochul's choice for the next chief judge, Hector LaSalle, Hochul had insisted that the Constitution requires a vote of all 63 senators, not just a single committee. On February 15th, Hochul finally got her way. The entire Senate voted on LaSalle, and he lost again. 39 senators, virtually all Democrats, voted against him, and just 20 voted in favor, mostly Republicans. It was a rebuke to Hochul from members of her own party who believed that LaSalle was too conservative to hold the post. The governor tried to put a positive spin on it, saying that she was victorious in winning a full up-or-down vote on her nominee. have the advice and consent of the Senate, not simply a committee, which was the position that was held by everybody else, uh, up until today, so I think this is a good outcome to at least let it get to the floor of the Senate. The dispute comes as the governor and legislature face an April 1 deadline to agree on a new state budget. They have just six weeks to work on a spending plan. Hochul, speaking on WAMC's Capital Connection, says she won't let the fight stand in the way. I'm very able to compartmentalize different issues. I've been in this business a long time. I've had to work with you know, people throughout life who've uh, not necessarily agreed with me on every issue. And, but there's other issues where you find common interests. The governor says she wants to change the culture in Albany, and she doesn't plan to hold a grudge. She describes her relationship with Senate leader Andrea Stork-Cousins as friendly. She says they met for nearly two hours before the vote was held to talk about budget priorities. Stork-Cousins agrees that the fight over the chief judge is not interfering with work on the budget and other issues. And she says the confirmation process is more fraught with tension because of recent decisions by the U.S. Supreme Court, including ones that rescinded abortion rights and struck down New York's gun safety laws that deal with the carrying of concealed weapons. Everybody is paying attention, riveted, to who's sitting in these seats, who's sitting in the judiciary, who's making these decisions. So it was not inappropriate for us, with the eyes of the nation and the eyes of the state on us, to look for a nominee that was able to lead the court in this really, really critical time. Hochul says she will now begin the nomination process all over again. She'll request a new list of nominees from the state's Judicial Nominating Commission. 
Democratic senators who opposed LaSalle have said they want the governor to choose someone that they believe will uphold liberal values and protect society's most vulnerable. Senate leader Stuart Cousins says whomever Hochul chooses will, like LaSalle, face scrutiny from the Senate. She says the times require senators to set a high bar and that they are seeking a visionary leader to head the courts. Somebody who comes with those sorts of uh, credentials and the kind of vision that is in sync with what we need, as well as the leadership qualities, as well as the management qualities, people will be open and receptive. Stuart Cousin says this time she wants to get it done. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok spoke with Albany County District Attorney David Soares this week about the governor's proposal surrounding bail reform. If you're a business owner who's had to suffer the, uh, the, the indignation of having um, uh, recidivists come into your shop and harass your customers, um, like you're seeing in, in major thoroughfares throughout Albany County. If you are a person who doesn't feel safe walking in your own community, or if you're sick and tired of, of the violence, um, then you would be supporting Governor Hochul in her proposal to uh, revisit the bail reform statute, specifically revisiting the language of least restrictive non-monetary condition. And to briefly explain that to you, Alan, is that right now, um, if a person comes into your sandwich shop and is harassing you, what we call aggressive panhandling, uh, and you reach out for the police, the police will come, the police will remove that individual, but that individual will be right back on the street. If they come back to your shop the very following day, and this time they assault you, the police will come back and remove that individual, and that individual will not be released immediately, but will go before a judge. And that judge must apply the least restrictive non-monetary condition, which means they have to conduct an individual assessment of that individual's income, which you know will be non-existent, which means they will be released under the supervision of probation. Now, for that store owner, telephoning the police twice, having the police engaged in two separate activities is brought no relief to, to that uh, store owner. And that's what's happening on the retail side. On the, on the community side, these reforms, and I'm not just talking about bail reform, I'm talking about bail reform, I'm talking about discovery reform and raise the age, has had a catastrophic effect in black and brown communities, which, by the way, our leaders promised, they promised that the, the, the impetus for passing these reforms was to, in fact, bring equity. It hasn't brought equity, and now we've had three years, three years um, in, uh, under this existing condition, and there is not a hole that is deep enough that you can bury your head to continue to ignore what is happening in, in communities all across uh, New York State. I know that this is happening in New York City, and it's happening in Albany. It's happening in Buffalo. My colleagues 
we're waiting for people to come to their senses. And when they do come to their senses, David Soares, what will their senses be saying? Their senses is to reevaluate what they have done and to make the corrections, which I cannot say emphatically enough. Governor Hochul must be supported in the reforms that she has proposed in her state of the state and the tweaks that she continues to advocate for. She has to be supported. So let's go specifically, sort of one by one, if you would be kind enough to do that, to tell us what those reforms will be. The reforms should be this. No 16- or 17-year-old child should ever be permitted to carry a loaded firearm, be apprehended multiple times, for carrying a loaded firearm and continue to visit family court for counseling, crackers, and juice. That, to me, is such common sense that it shouldn't matter which side of the aisle. That's one of those areas that we should have universal, universal agreement. Because the current law in New York State is if a child is apprehended with a loaded firearm, so long as that child does not display the firearm, then that child can go to family court and continue to receive family court treatment. And in Albany County, we have multiple, multiple defendants that continue to be apprehended by law enforcement, that continue to be returned home to their parents in the communities with the same existing conditions. That's one. Discovery. The fact that we have 35 days um, to provide every single shred of information in, in an ongoing case to defense counsel at the infancy stages of an investigation and case is baffling to me. It's simply baffling. And that's what has caused the massive turnaround, um, turnover in terms of personnel in district attorney's offices all throughout the state. We are losing advocates who advocate for victims in courts. That should be alarming to every citizen who uh, believes and appreciates law and, and order and believes that individuals should be held accountable. And, and again, bail? Bail is absurd. It is the most absurd piece of legislation that has been passed since the Rockefeller drug laws, and I think we just need to pause and understand what it is that they have passed and how it's affecting every person in communities. That's Albany County District Attorney David Soares speaking with Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Chartonk. listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. New York Congressman Paul Tonko visited Stratton Albany VA Medical Center this week to speak with veterans and their families about the PACT Act. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas was there and filed this report. The promise to address Comprehensive Toxics Act was signed in August by President Biden. Tonko a Democrat from the 20th District says it marks one of the largest benefit expansions in the VA's history. PACT Act will ensure veterans living with the effects of uh, toxic exposure, including exposure to burn pits and Agent Orange, so that they can access the care and benefits they deserve. It does this by expanding and extending eligibility and health care services for veterans who experience toxic exposure and veterans of the Vietnam, Gulf War, and post-9-11 eras. 
The PACT Act also codifies the VA's new procedure for establishing a presumption of toxic exposure and requires the VA to seek external input and review in this process. These critical changes will allow our VA to provide more veterans with access to the care that they truly need. The legislation also ended the requirement for veterans and their survivors to prove a service connection if they are indeed diagnosed with one of the listed conditions, including certain respiratory diseases and several forms of cancer. This change will help reduce paperwork, it will reduce appointments, and it will get rid of other barriers to accessing VA health care and compensation for our eligible veterans. State Assembly Member Pat Fahey of the 109th District says legislative bodies have taken a strong stance in the fight to remove toxins from everyday life. We're trying to move away from uh, the PFAS and PFOAs or the forever chemicals out of clothing. Uh, we've done it out of food packaging. We know not only what our vets have been exposed to, we know every day there, there is exposure because so many toxic chemicals have been become so prolific. Uh, we are spending billions to upgrade our water systems because we should be able to take it for granted when we turn on our faucets that our water is safe. And that unfortunately has not been the case in a few areas you've all heard of. Flint, Michigan, Hoosick Falls, we've had major problems down in Rockland County. The PACT Act supporters in Congress include West Point graduate and combat veteran Pat Ryan, a Democrat from New York's 18th District. So President Biden last year said, we need to do this, we're going to do this, put out that call to action. And in that year's time, we passed this landmark PACT Act legislation that allows my generation of post 9-11 veterans, Vietnam and other uh, veterans to get better access to, to the care that they need. Tonko says the PACT Act is one of the largest benefit expansions in the VA's history and has the potential to help millions of vets who experienced toxic exposure and their survivors access benefits and care. VFW Department of New York Service Officer Madison Fletcher says claims can be filed now by vets or survivors to apply for PACT Act-related benefits. The importance of getting people into the program is the amount of things that the VA has to offer as far as health care, um, you know, anything that you can get service connected, the VA will cover. But it's outside of that, too, the, the benefits for your family if you get service connected. You, you have to think about your legacy afterwards. A lot of veterans don't want to claim because they think they're taking from somebody else. You're not. That's not the case. You know, you, you've earned what you are entitled to. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustino. Throughout the past year, people across the globe have been finding ways to support Ukrainians, whether sending relief funds, supporting military aid, or actually traveling to Ukraine to help. As we mark the first anniversary of the war this week, the Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley recently visited a Saranac Lake veterinarian who traveled to Ukraine to help animals and saw the impact of the conflict. 
I meet Dr. John Kogar at his home just north of Saranac Lake on a cool morning as a wintry cloud cover settles over the landscape. Hello. Hi, how are you, Dr. Kogar? Good. Too bad it's not sunny. See, on a clear day, you can see Whiteface Mountain right there. It's right there. Leaving this pastoral setting in the Adirondacks, Dr. Kogar traveled to Ukraine last October, spending 10 days working at a veterinary clinic in Irpine, east of Kyiv. He explained how he made the decision to go to Ukraine in the midst of a war. I was on five United States national bobsled teams. I got to meet Dmitry Feld, who was the head of the U.S. luge team. We got to be good friends. And he was from Russia slash Ukraine. But he was raised in Ukraine, and he considers himself Ukrainian. So over the next 25, 30 years, I took care of his animals, being his veterinarian in the area. So when this horrible, unjustified invasion took place, like you and everybody else, I saw national news people from bombed-out buildings carrying their pets in their arms, and animal lovers all over the world were touched by people grabbed nothing else but their pets and the clothes on their back a lot of times. So that aroused my thinking. But number two, Dmitry Feld, who I just talked about, he was putting Ukrainian flags up and down Lake Placid. So I wrote out a check, and then I made the proverbial... <laughs> statement. Is there anything else I can do? And he, and he said, as a matter of fact, there is. He said, they're in dire need of veterinary help in, in Ukraine. I'm semi-retired. I thought about it, and I said, why not? You know, why, why not? It felt like a calling to me, you know, to help these people and to help the animals. My wife was not happy about this. She thought I was nuts. But to be fair to her, I didn't even know what I was getting into. I mean, there's, it's a war zone, you know. So uh, I didn't know how dangerous it was going to be. I, I wasn't even sure, as did I'm sure nobody knew wh where the, the military front was shifting or moving. Or So anyway, Dimitri and I, we talked back and forth, and he arranged the whole trip with him going with me, just the two of us. We flew right out of Lake Clear Airport, which is three minutes from this house, right to Boston, Boston, Heathrow, and London, and then, you know, on to Krakow, Poland, and we had to take a car ride, and then get on a train in Poland, and then a 10-hour train to Kiev, the capital of Ukraine. And then from there, we actually went about 30 miles further east to a city called the Irpine, and that's where I did uh, my veterinary work. That's where I was for 10 days straight doing surgery. And Irpine saw the brunt of the beginning of the war. There I saw bombed-out building after bombed-out building, and destroyed houses, hundreds of destroyed cars. It took a beating compared to Kiev itself. I wasn't in an active war zone, but I was in an area that had been, you know, saw the brunt of Russian occupation for a while. Did you have any reservations before or when you were seeing those buildings about going? Uh, I'm the kind of person, when I make up my mind to do something, after I weigh all the factors, 
I go straight ahead, and I, I don't I don't have any doubts. I was not hesitant about the dangers or anything at that point. I just wanted to do it and help these people. And when when I got there, it, it did not feel like a dangerous place. But in retrospect, looking back, I was in a lot more danger, I think, than I, than I knew of. I remember one morning on my third or fourth day, Dimitri and I were walking to the veterinary clinic. He interpreted for me all the time. And, but the person said to him, uh, there was a drone shot out of the sky two blocks down like four hours ago. You know, my eyes got kind of big. And they said, don't worry, our military's good. I saw tons of devastation from what had happened months before. Yeah, it was probably, I was probably in more danger than I thought I was, but I didn't feel like I was in much danger when I was there. I was focused on my work. You brought at least one drone with you for the Ukrainian military. Yes, that's correct. I didn't even know we were doing this myself. I, I actually had a whole massive suitcase full of veterinary supplies. About a week before we went, Dmitry Feld asked me, are you taking a carry-on? I go, well, why are you asking? <laughs> he says, because if you're not, I'd like us each to take a military drone. He somehow had an avenue where he obtained these, so we each took a drone with us. I was surprised we didn't have trouble getting through security and everything else with these things, but we were fine. These are drones for surveillance, mostly, the ones we brought. Um, So they were really life-saving. And I understand they met you at the train station? Yeah, that's correct. We got in at the train station about 8 o'clock in the evening. It was very dark. I think the electricity was out once again. But anyway, when we got off the train and exited the the station, which is quite beautiful, by the way, this whole military group was waiting to greet us and meet us. And then uh, the following day, I started my work, my my veterinary work. So what was your typical day like at the veterinary clinic? They'd always have anywhere between 8 and 11 animals for me to do surgery on. Which is a lot. That'd be a lot even for me at my veterinary clinic. But it was extremely difficult or stressful or, you know, taxing because, you know, they didn't have the modern things that I am used to. For instance, there was no gas anesthesia. So I had to do it all with chemical anesthesia. It's a lot more difficult, a lot more tricky. So that was one burden. The other was the lighting was terrible, and uh, the light they did have didn't work half the time because of the electricity that went out all the time. The technicians didn't speak a word of English, but I don't want to sound like I'm complaining because this is a war-torn country, and I didn't expect when I went there for things to be any better than they were. In fact, the facility was better than I thought it would be. The building, it's a very modern building. Kiev itself, if you if I took you to Kiev right now, you'd be amazed. You'd think you were in downtown Montreal. The buildings are gorgeous. Architecture is phenomenal. The culture, they have ballet, symphony orchestra, and you don't see many bomb buildings at all, at least not when I was there. Anyway, my point being, the facility was fine. It was just very trying conditions. But the good news is, We did numerous spays and neuters and some other surgeries, but every patient did well, every single one. 
When you were treating the pets and the animals that came in, you mentioned spay and neuter, but were you encountering pets that were injured because of war injuries or things like that? Not really, because we were, um, we were still a ways from the front lines. You know, we were probably 50, 60 miles from the front lines, which is close enough, right? The reason the spay-neuter thing was so important is because so many of these animals that I was seeing had to be abandoned. They belonged to people, but a lot of people just had to take off and run for their lives, and they didn't want to leave their pets. So why the spay-neuter thing is so important is because now they have a much better chance of being adopted. You also had to operate on some military dogs, too. Mm -hmm. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. But they were not major war injuries. You know, nothing too melodramatic. Did that bring the war home to you at all? Well, it did. I'll tell you why. The military thing was it was very emotional because some of these dogs, their job was to smell out mines and bombs and things. But some of the other ones were for human remains, you know, to sniff out people that had died from bombed-out buildings. That brought the war right to me. You know, it, it was sobering. Did you get a chance to meet any Ukrainians and socialize at all with them? Absolutely. I had one half day off. That's when I got to do sightseeing in the Kiev, so-called sightseeing, if you want to call it that, in a war-torn country. But in the evenings, if you know Dmitry Feld, he's quite the guy. Uh, he hadn't been in Ukraine in 40 years, but after three days, it seemed like everybody knew who he was. So anyway, we were invited every other evening to dinner by some Ukrainian, either to their homes or to, believe it or not, nice restaurants, very nice restaurants. What kind of memories will really remain with you from this trip? The journey there was one thing. Number two, the thing that I'll always remember is the total devastation. I'm not talking a few bombed out buildings. I'm talking hundreds and hundreds of homes, nice homes, just blown apart, just sadistically set on fire by Russian troops when they occupied the area. And then seeing the cars with machine gun bullets, and you know every one of those cars, occupants inside had perished. As a child, I remember seeing World War II black and white film strips of bombed out Germany or Poland or whatever, England, uh, London. So to me, that was all academic, you know. That was <laughs> something I got out of a high school history book or on a film strip. But I saw this live. I mean, I saw this. And it, 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 it looked like what I had seen from World War II era pictures. And uh, I didn't think I'd ever see that in my lifetime. Dr. John Kogar was in Ukraine from October 16th to the 31st. He hopes to return after the war is over. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2308 or just listen online at wamc.org or schedule a podcast wherever you get your podcast. 
and join us again next week at the same time. For more news on New York State government and politics, for the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustino.